welcome to the Honest Property Investment Podcast. My name is Natasha Collins and I'm the host of this podcast. I am also CEO and founder of my own firm of surveyors, NC Real Estate, which is the place for landlords and property investors to come and build mixed use and commercial property portfolios that align with their goals. Today, I have a really exciting guest on the podcast. Jen Lemon is the co-founder of Property Elite. She's a charter surveyor and RICS APC assessor. She's the author of How to Become a Charter Surveyor, published by Rutledge. She's also an experienced property consultant, co-director of Project with FRICS status, an RICS registered valuer, and an RICS accredited mediator with nearly 15 years experience working in the commercial property sector. Hi, Jen. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. That's all right. I'm really excited to delve into all things commercial property, RICS, what's going on in the industry right now, because I think we need to have a chat about the updates. Perfect. I'll be very happy to uh, throw a few interesting ideas into the ring. Can I ask first, you're a mediator and evaluator. Why did you pick those routes to go down? Because for a lot of surveyors, that would be like, um... <laughs> oh, so when I when I qualified, I did valuation to level three. So I got my registered valuer. And um, I don't do that much valuation work, but I think having that as a having that accreditation is quite a good thing for um clients to see. Yeah. So that was the reason for that. And then um, the mediation, uh, the um, credits of mediator last last year. Yeah, it must have been last year. I thought, oh, you know what? I haven't done, I haven't gone and learned something for a while. Um, so I thought, oh, what, um, what courses or, you know, stuff like that. And I used to do, we used to help with a lot of um, expert witness reports for rent reviews. Yeah. So supermarket rent reviews quite a few years ago. And I thought, oh, you know, third party is interesting. Mediation, if we've got um, the RICS launched a mediation scheme during COVID for, I think they call it um, ooh, independent rental evaluation, they had a scheme and that involved mediation. So I thought, great, let's do the course and then see if I can get on the panel for that. Um, <laughs> finish the course, but then they weren't accepting mediators for the panel. <laughs> so um it is a new string yeah, it's a new string to my uh bow but not one that I've um used yet frustratingly <laughs> that's going to be to solve commercial uh, rent and service charge disputes next year once- yeah <clears throat> it's got a really interesting application that oh, I don't know maybe more landlords and tenants are maybe not using agents and are just speaking directly so if I'm not acting so much as an agent for either party maybe there's that role in the middle as the mediator that's kind of my thought process for for doing it um but whether whether landlords and tenants have the money and the under maybe the understanding of what mediation is maybe I was being a bit optimistic maybe I was being a bit optimistic but um it's good genuinely interesting course and actually is like general skills to learn 10 out of 10 Okay. So not something not something I regret doing, but not something I've used equally. <laughs> so mediation, when for everybody who doesn't know what mediation is, when they listen to the 
the mm. conversation or the podcast what is mediation media okay so <clears throat> if you've got two parties who disagree about something your mediator sits in the middle they um listen to each party they collect the facts together and then <clears throat> they don't they don't say this is what we're going to do this is the solution but they facilitate a discussion between the parties so they find common ground they might look at different solutions and then eventually you might have an offer being put forward by one side to the other you know then you look at the merits of the offer and eventually the the overall aim is to come to a, a contractually binding settlement so a bit like agreeing a deal to sell a property you'd have your heads of terms agreed between the parties and then you put it in writing so in, in theory it's a great way to break the deadlock especially when I don't know when disputes get personal and two parties just can't be in the same room um yeah. I think in that case just having somebody in the middle to kind of say calm down I'm going to listen to you I'm going to listen to you as well and the parties then kind of it's quite a positive thing for each party to then start working together um so yeah it's a little person in the middle helping two people come to an agreement okay and that's going to be really important going forward because there's there's a, a million things that come coming out of covid where rents haven't been paid there's you know where rents haven't been paid repairs been done you know, what's happened to service charges um and you know who wants to go to court so and actually the I think the civil procedurals and the courts actually really promote the benefits of looking at um a alternative dispute resolution so things like mediation and showing you're willing to do that is a big step in that court process so um I think we'll find it does get more popular but maybe it's a maybe a little bit too early stage for it to have truly caught on. Yeah. I think, I think, because everybody's still dealing with the aftermath of, well, we're not even out of COVID, are we? We're not out of COVID. No. No, not at all. There are some retailers, tenants, no, it's not even just retailers. I mean, there's always these headlines about how retailers begin to suffer, but across the commercial sector really apart from industrial but I would say some industrial sites are really struggling because they can't get supplies the cost of goods has gone up yeah impacted the sector across the board right massively yeah we've seen such a such a such a shake-up of um of everything you know if you if you go to your high street now compared to what two years ago maybe I know I'm in Bournemouth and I know the difference between Bournemouth town centre two years ago compared to now is completely different and in some ways we've just had um here's an example so we've just had a new department store open and um I think it's the old old Debenhams called Bobby's and apparently Bobby's was a department store years and years and years ago so it's coming back to the town and it looks incredible um they've got like an outside um uh, ice cream store they've got a dog food hall um and it things like that that get born from the I don't know from the ashes of a decimated high street it's quite it's quite exciting quite innovative but it's also quite sad just to see all the empty shop you know you'll know like certain parts of town in any town there's just those streets that are dead now yeah. and um what happens to them that's probably the big question yes and who can afford to do something about it? I mean, 
from my point of view, it's good because as investors and investors who are listening, you'll you'll be very aware that you're at the moment you can pick up really cheap commercial property. I'm just in the process of buying one that back in 2019 was valued at 316,000 and I'm buying it for 165,000. So they've made a huge oh. on it. And that's because the rents have changed over COVID. And that's the same throughout the UK. We're seeing a lot of our clients being able to pick up dirt, cheap commercial properties. And now the next stage is going to be innovation. Where do we go from here? What do you put in these vacant units? What does it look like? And there's been... Exciting. Exciting, right? (laughs) Do you think? I mean, there's so many retailers as well looking. There's people who are happy to pick up these vacant spaces um what do you see the outcome of this being god well it's i don't know i think i've had discussions for a a few years and um things like looking at some of the i don't know the the secondary shopping centers in kind of market towns that for years and years have been declining they're empty and yeah what do you repurpose them for are they are they town center residential you know, in the in the south in particular, we don't have enough houses that are affordable. Where do people want to live that's close to transport amenities? That seems like a a, a prime thing to convert to resi. Um, and I also think those kind of things like medical uses um, to repurpose big empty retail units for doctors. Um, I guess even as we're opening up again it, it it's the retailers who survive isn't it and it's the restaurants that survive and who adapt and um there's I don't know working in commercial property there's always an opportunity it's probably just not the opportunity that you were looking at before um we all kind of evolved don't we over 5 10 15 years and what what you were doing five years ago what I was doing five years ago is so completely different but you've just got to look for where look we all look for where the value is yep um and they're always will be like the um extension of permitted development rights things like that of going you know um and the new e-use class so it's just so more much more flexible um things like that and you know yeah it the process of changing use being a lot easier um although i did read that i think in quite a few london Maybe London in um, particular are putting Article 4 directions to stop those <laughs> wider changes of use coming in. So um, probably we'll have to be very aware of doing our due diligence. Yeah. <laughs> or by quickly, because you always have that 12-month period, don't you, between yeah. them being allowed to put their Article 4 restrictions in place. But then you've got to be very aware as well. One thing actually... What, what it means is one thing that a lot of developers don't realise is that even if you've got your permitted development rights, you still have to pass building control. Otherwise, they come back through and tell you it's not safe. And so that's that's one of the reasons why they, they're trying to prevent it, aren't they? Because they don't want unsafe housing that's touch wood not going to burn down. But Yeah, well, yeah, if you take your 60s office building, which was built for an office, in the 60s that is not built for your 2020 residential apartment even things like um I imagine soundproofing like fire safety yep. um like the lift might be 
30 years. There's so many things that you're like, it's your standard, isn't it? Your standard of your standard of building has to be so much more for somebody to live in than 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 just to work in and those spaces probably aren't even let anyway because it's much better offices elsewhere it's even like an old retail shop isn't it how because if something's really deep how does that make how do you get the natural light for it for somebody's living space i see it i find it fascinating yeah me too i really enjoy working out the problems but you do need to problem solve you can't just think you're buying up a property cheap and (laughs) (laughs) and then it's really easy to put that into residential accommodation because you've got to think well would you actually live there a lot of people don't yeah like, putting into blocks of flats people don't like ground floor accommodation do they so what are you going to put on the ground floor as opposed to the upper part yeah yeah and there's a resident like you see I'm thinking like um in Bristol there's some old shops that have been turned into resi years ago but they just have like a shop front with curtains and a door and it's not it doesn't it doesn't give you that feeling of well-being and yeah, a nice place to live. It's yeah, it just doesn't. And yeah, you think, well, I don't know. As a as a landlord, as an owner, you've well, I feel that you've really got that duty to the people, like your tenants, to keep them safe because it's not. So I find this a really like a really big thing that you're you're you you've got much more of a higher duty to those people that you you house in reality. Yep. Um, Agreed. You've got to look after so, that. That's going to be the one barrier to entry. Mm. But I think we'll, we'll see with these. <coughs> it's all very well having permitted development rights, but actually, does the building work for that, or do you need to bring the building down? Put up something. Yeah. Else? That's full planning, isn't it? That's not. And that's a heck of a lot of cost to rebuild, even adding an extra story like do the foundation support there's got to be so many things and so many different professionals that your very diligent developer needs to consult with and I don't know I, I assume you could find some quite uh, nasty surprises if you don't do your um, groundwork at the start to, to look at those costs I'm gonna say ouch <laughs> that's gonna be the only problem with the innovation going forward can you actually afford to do the innovation does the income justify the renovation and if not then there will be empty buildings still and in which case the government really needs to have a look at those buildings yeah yeah and even things like town centers it's the fact that i don't know if you've got seven properties in a row five are really keen to do something but two are owned and they don't want to do anything how you don't really have that like it's not like they're all publicly owned so you can unless the government buy them up, local authorities buy them up, which I know they have been, but yep. there's no cohesiveness to have to have like a, a a overall kind of strategy for a town centre. And even when things are just independently redeveloped, how how do you make the place work? How does it how does that street connect to another? How do you make it a, like a nice place to be? I think I it, that's a real challenge to huge challenge tenant selection high school. yeah you know what actually nowadays brings people to a hub and what does that hub look <clears> like <throat> because no longer if you've got your traditional anchor tenants with your mm. parades with a little bit of tenant mix your prep with your couple of women's retailers couple of men's retailers that we would have originally been doing yeah 
yeah, yeah, yeah. It's um, maybe not. I can't remember what it was. I was reading an article about um, the death of zoning as a as a valuation method calculation in saying that because lots of shops are now it's not based on your frontage mm-hmm. and you've got lots of different uses how do we now value retail space it is zoning is zoning dead and I thought that was quite do quite you, forward thinking do you think it will be I'm getting to the point where you're seeing more people do it on a pound per square foot basis especially in the regional towns yeah I I don't know I think because valuation is so obvious obviously it has to be backward looking because we're looking at evidence yeah it'll be really really slow to filter out if it does and it it is a really useful way to analyze something but I guess you could do your zones analysis and your overall and compare them yeah. And I suppose in an ideal world, they should be this like relatively similar. Yeah. But I don't, but yeah, if you've got a new E use class and before you might have paid more for A3 and then valued it overall, but now it's E and it's all combined together, that throws a hot mess of valuation issues into the, into it. So under E class at the moment, are you valuing both on an overall and on an ITZA basis, do you think? I, you know what, I don't actually know if I've um, valued something under it, just thinking. But yeah, you'd have to, if it's E, you'd have to take, well, you could use any evidence, which could be the former various A use classes. And if you, yeah, what is the highest value use under E now could technically be a restaurant, couldn't it? Yeah. So are we... I kind of think, yeah, you'd have to do it on both because otherwise it's not realistically valuing what could be. I suppose you look at the market, don't you? And if it's yeah. if it's too small to put, I don't know, a restaurant in, you wouldn't use that evidence. But equally, if you could house and yeah, it, it's, yeah. <laughs> because also in some areas, B1 or D1 has always been. Partic- yeah, of course. Particularly, yeah. Uh, lucrative yeah it throws at the um importance of knowing your um local area yeah it does massively such an interesting conversation that there is no right answer for at the moment is there any guidance from the RACS absolutely um nothing actually (laughs) on um no no, nothing to help with that Which is probably why the valuations that we're getting back at the moment when we're getting lending are so stringent. I'm seeing valuers just, valuations at the moment are the biggest reports I've ever seen. I used to see big valuation reports. You know, red book reports have to be long, but now they are in detail valuing every single type of value. They don't really make a decision anymore as to what they're recommending to the lender. It's kind of, this is market value, but... This is the 180-day Yes. And I think that has a lot to do with what are you valuing? Yeah, I wonder what, and I haven't seen it, but I wonder what, I wonder if the lenders have updated their guidance to give, to give some, yeah, I don't know actually, but I'd be interested, I'd be interested to know from a commercial security valuation lender to see what, um, see what they're directed to do because they probably get more guidance from, they're different lenders than they do from anywhere else. Yeah. 
interesting isn't it and then it goes right. back to the fact that l- lenders have different valuation criteria that they will lend on yeah it's yeah even between i was looking at um uh lending for a company to buy a buy-to-let that was a new build and it was a nightmare because so many lenders just just wouldn't look at it at all there was I think two lenders in the end who'd even consider it so I imagine commercials even more Mm -hmm. even there's more risk isn't there effectively so I imagine they're more stringent and more yep um what's it and what they're doing come down to just one lender saying yes all right we'll take it on but we're going to charge you a ridiculous interest rate that's that's oh. where we are in the market at the moment. But again, it comes down to what's best market practice? What does the market even look like right now? We're playing in such strange territory that no one's seen. But that's, again, we go back to the fact that you need to be innovative and it's exciting. Yeah, it's like the Wild West. <laughs> <laughs> it is, but we get to make it up as we go along, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's, a stra- it's, a very strange, it's a very strange world to work in. Um, but it's weird isn't it because if you compare it to like 2008 2009 Mm -hmm. which was oh it was just a crash it was more that's more predictable I think than the the COVID related I don't know whatever we want to call it they're so different in nature because some things are doing so well some things are not doing well and yeah there's no precedent for what what we kind of do I expect in like 12 months it'll all kind of flatten out and we'll have a bit more of a handle on things I agree I think it's just because it was not this is not bank related there's still money Mm, money. that's true you know yeah people have probably got more in a way haven't they because they've sat there squirreling away yeah money because there's been nothing to spend it on (laughs) exactly exactly So what other updates are we seeing at the moment from the RACS? Where, how is the market changing? Okay, so the, uh, I think the biggest one is um, they finished uh, consulting on the new ethical standards and rules of conduct. Mm-hmm. So um, effectively, they will be scrapping everything that is, so five, five ethical standards, rules of conduct for firms and for members, and then combining them in one new um ethical standards document and okay. um, so it will be more comprehensive and there's a bit more guidance on kind of like practical application which I think will will really help but isn't it always the issue that as surveyors we self-regulate so a lot is about our own decision making of how we apply the standards to our work and if you're in a big corporate firm in London that's probably different to your um sole trader in mid Scotland for your level of yeah. risk so um I think that is a big change and there'll have to be there's probably not that much adaptation to it but being aware of it and I think I think just being able to justify what we do and that um just that gut feel of it's it's morally and ethically right and I did this because mm-hmm. and and keeping a really clear audit trail and let's face it you know claims etc the best thing to do is to be a good person be nice to your clients communicate well and keep everything in writing and that's probably the essence of what we can take from all of this (laughs) if I'm being slightly simplistic but (laughs) that's a good summary 
I yeah. think it's probably fair to say. So that's one of the big things. The RICS have also done a massive, um, uh, massive consultation called Defining Our Future, um, which is basically uh, looking at the state of the RICS and looking at, at making it fit for purpose today. And um, I think that's running alongside a some sort of internal scrutiny of RICS and the way it's run. But I, I haven't seen details of that. And they released a summary of the responses of defining our future. But I, I suspect they're going to maybe combine the two to kind of set out this is what we're this is what we're doing. And I think that will have pretty wide-ranging impacts on on everything RICS, the way that the way we get qualified, the way that we're regulated, the way that um the way that the RICS is right. I think it will be it will be a really major um uh re I don't know resetting of how it all works it'll be quite it'll be quite fascinating to see how it happens mm-hmm. yeah I um, think it's been needed yeah definitely and it's I don't know in a way it's I think it's become bigger than just surveyors knowing about it like, you know there's lots about uh you know things like building magazines some of the residential um mortgage lending newsletters some of the like it's wider than just surveys it's kind of the public and the professionals that we work with knowing that something's gone maybe not gone quite right and if the if part of the goal of the RICS is to promote trust we we promote trust in the profession and we give confidence to clients yeah that's that's it the the real core of how do we how do we make sure that we don't lose that? Um, and it's slipped somewhere along the line. Yeah, and yeah, how how does that that get brought back? Because there's not there's not really an alternative to being a surveyor. I was having this conversation the other day that um, my wife's a chiropractor. So if chiropractor's got a really bad name, you could go see an osteopath, or you could go see a physio, or you could go see a GP. So you've got all these alternatives. But if you don't use a surveyor who who do you use so there's no real alternative so I think there has to be a real push to go we worked like yeah to, to refocus what we do as being really professional agreed agreed and that we and are, I think we do the most people do oh that's exactly it I was yeah that, for the most part most surveyors you come across are really proud of what they do and are very much oh. down to their core believe that integrity honesty promoting trust in the profession that's what they do it's just a select few and unfortunately based upon all the reports that came out at the end of last year or was it the end of last year now yeah yeah I think so just before Christmas I think yeah it's just so damning from the top so yeah and it's because what when you when you got qualified what did that mean to you what did it make you feel? <laughs> I was so proud of the fact that I'd done all of that work and I had abs- I'd sacrificed a lot and I'd worked really hard and I'd kind of pushed myself to breaking point and I still get got through. And then I think I was even more proud when I started my own firm and I was like, look, I'm regulated. You know, and it's, it's really, that's the best feeling actually that I could do that. And that we can show that we're a regulated firm and that we uphold standards 
it was really disappointing to see that that didn't come from the top. And I kind of felt like, well, you know, we spend so much, we pay so much for regulation. We have to jump through so many hoops on an annual basis. We keep up to date with standards, but yet, where does that come from? And that was sad. Yeah. Yeah, almost because I, there's so, there's so many good people at RICS and I got a little bit involved with the, um, with their regulatory team who kind of oversee and um, audit valuations and how standards are being upheld and that they were, they are so passionate just like you and I are about, um, about doing that and helping, helping surveyors to like be the, like be the best effectively. And there is, there's something somewhere along the way that just got disjointed and um yeah it is sad because like yeah your your letters like they do they're more than just letters aren't they there are a lot like so yeah you've worked for that you keep up to date with that you just yeah your identity as a professional yeah 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 definitely and I because so part of the business I run is about helping people to get qualified. So obviously I'm really passionate and really proud about yeah. being qualified. So yeah, you just feel a bit like, oh, it's a bit, yeah, it's a bit of a, a bit of a downer when um, you see that. But I don't know. I think all of us just working with clients and showing them that we are really professional, that's probably the way that um, we tackle it. Yeah. And working with each other and showing that we're professional and we've got a level of respect for the surveyors that you come across because how nice is it when you're working with another surveyor and they're going to be on the opposite side and you know that but you're still Mm. getting that communication because there's that level of respect there yeah and one day you could be working with somebody the next day they move firms and you're acting against them and it like half the time if you're if you're trying to buy a building off somebody if you're doing a rent review if you're doing a lease renewal you're not you're not on completely the opposite side of the table because you're you're trying to work together over a period of time yeah so you kind of think it's not it's not about um it's not it's not about point scoring it's not about egos and actually if you can just have a really honest conversation with somebody then and and be on good terms you just get a lot more out of it and your client gets a lot more out of it which is the which is the intention yeah yeah and everybody saves a bit of money because we've not been beating around the bush for months upon months upon months and it doesn't go to third yeah yeah and often it's that I don't know often it's the creative solutions isn't it that's just not the I don't know if you're if you're doing a rent review and you really can't find a solution well is there a different way to look at it is there a break clause coming up you know is there some extra space you need is there something that your client could take elsewhere to to make the deal work and that's that that's the bit where um I don't know as surveyors we can bring our clients to the right place and yes. um yeah work together and having that being able to be nice to somebody and go for a drink down the pub afterwards and it's all fine and you'll work together again in future in some capacity that has to be the um that has to be the aim yeah because it's six degrees of separation you do yeah <laughs> <laughs> you know people through knowing people that's like yeah because yeah I will know someone through knowing someone the property industry is actually a very small world 
Yeah. Oh, yeah. And if you burn a bridge, there's there's no going there's no going back, really, is there? You're, you we trade off our reputations. Yeah. Exactly. All the so, time, we have to do what we say we're going to do. Yeah. Yeah. And so much is what. So much is word of mouth. Of oh my, I don't know. For me, it's I don't know. My colleague, my friend, work with you. You're really nice. You help them. And it is, it all just seems to be word of mouth. So actually, yeah, um, yeah, yeah, I'm on board with that. (laughs) (laughs) Any other changes that we can see coming in? Coming in on the horizon. So um, typically, well, there's lots of new guidance plans. Things like Japanese knotweed is being consulted on, um, which I think will be, there's a new, I assume it will be a professional statement or a guidance note. Can't remember which, but it will just clarify a lot of new research about Japanese knotweed, its impact on property and value. And I, I'm guessing that will probably come out maybe later this year. But I think that will be um, quite interesting. And obviously, things like residential lending will have an impact on that. Um, what else have we had? Um, we just had a new guidance note on asbestos, which um, clarifies loads of things. I don't. It's a very interesting read to just understand, um, you know, if we've got clients, we own buildings, what is asbestos? Why is it really important to be aware of it? And what do you have to do as the duty holder? So um, I think that was a really timely piece of guidance and worth reading. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we mentioned before the um, uh, EWS1 um situation and the issues around that in our OCS um, do have lots of guidance about it and they've also published some new guidance on leasehold valuation and secured lending so they are they are starting to put the framework in but I think it's it's it needs to catch up with the reality of the situation and that will take time to put policy to um to to fall in line with that mm-hmm. yeah some, something has to be done about that Definitely. So that will be an interesting, um, some interesting changes in the months ahead. It's exciting, though. I like that it's moving forward. I really appreciate that because sometimes we don't get updated guidance for years. No, that's true. Years and years and years, and we're still. Is it the real estate management? We've not seen an update in that for a long time. We could do some more guidance on, you know, property management. I'm looking forward to the block management standard yes thank that would be really interesting yeah thank goodness I'm I'm sick of hashing it out with block managers who are unregulated and think that they know what they're doing and yeah Yeah, block management is actually a really good area to have um, some more regulation on needs it um even so you know the it's probably a bit odd now, but the the government intention to regulate estate agents, yeah, and that's kind of fizzled out. But that seems like a a prime area for for our ICS to be involved in. Yeah, um, things like asset risks. There's a residential real estate agency pathway. Perfect. Ooh, do they combine with the ARLA on that? Do ARLA and the RICS work together ever? Uh, I think they. I think Arla and the RICS might have some joint guidance, which might be the private rented sector code of practice off the top of my head. So there's a little bit of um, 
collaboration, but the ARLA qualifications are so separate to our ICS and it would make sense to have more Makes sense. interplay. Because Arlie does some great, um, some great articles, some great, you know, stuff to read through. So um, why not? And also going back to what we were saying at the beginning, with the change of the high street in planning, most property managers or agents are going to have to deal with some element of commercial and some element of residential. It's mm. very, very rare that you come across anyone who's only purely dealt with residential, purely dealt with commercial that's true actually yeah or if you've got a commercial property manager who's got a load of flats upstairs things like the 1985 act and section 20 consultation and that's a whole minefield to to and that's really important to follow the steps because otherwise you're not going to be recovering a or is it more than 250 quid yeah yeah so exactly that's that's the scary thing is that they are trained in such silos but you realize pretty early on that you need to have understanding in both right (laughs) yeah I know do we get I don't know at university did I get taught equally about commercial and residential no I probably picked up a bit on residential but not not enough maybe that's a real area I don't know maybe residential surveying has become I don't mean the word more credible. I mean more, more an even footing in the industry to commercial surveying. It's not, it's not just an estate agent. If you see what I mean, there's a residential surveying is massively complex, and it's no different from commercial surveying. So, no, no, and you know all those things as commercial surveyors, we have to just learn on the job. You know, I learned section. Oh yeah, you know having to do all the background research, phone up local solicitors and just or solicitors I'd work with and be like, can you just spare 10 minutes to, to explain to me what this yeah. is? <laughs> yeah, I know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> oh, Jen, is there anything else that we need to know about updates, where the industry is going? Oh, is there anything else? Um, no, just that it's so, so quickly changing that um it's just it's just worth being aware being market aware and knowing what's going on and like we can't crystal ball gaze we don't know what's going to happen but we can kind of prepare ourselves and our clients as best as we can and then at least it's not such a surprise when um when the challenges come around <laughs> agreed agreed jen thank you so much for coming on the podcast today i've had a really good time it's been so insightful. Thank you for having the conversation. Thanks for having me. My pleasure. And if anybody wants to find out more about Jen, um, I'm going to put all the links in the show notes below. We had such a great conversation. Thank you, Jen, for coming and being on my podcast. I love a surveyor to surveyor chat. It means that we can talk about what's going on in the market, all the highs, the lows, what we're seeing. Oh, it makes me so pumped to be in this industry. Right, you all. Make sure that you rate and review this podcast. It helps me so much. I will just be eternally grateful if you could do that. Please, please, please. And remember to come and follow me on Instagram at Honest Property Investment. And you can email me if you've got anything you'd like to say, natasha at ncrealestate.co.uk. Thank you so much. 
for being here and listening to this podcast today. I cannot wait to catch up with you again soon.